If you are not there already, Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. As we look together at this prayer of Paul. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, that we do come before you this morning boldly in confidence in Christ alone. Yet this morning we stand in awe. Even as we've just confessed in song, that it was for me. Oh, praise his name, it was for me. The least of all the saints. Heavenly Father, we know our hearts. We know how desperately wicked and totally depraved that we are. And yet, in Christ this morning, we do not stand condemned, but we stand forgiven. We stand adopted. We stand in the hope of eternity in Christ alone. Because it was for me. Heavenly Father, even as we turn our attention to this passage, as we see the unknowable love of Christ, the strength that is ours in you, may we be encouraged to go from this place and to live like these things are true, to know in our depth, our very core, that they are true, that Jesus Christ has died for me, that I have been made new. To live the gospel, proclaim the gospel, that all around may see this glorious truth. Do a work in each and every one of our hearts this morning, Heavenly Father. Open our eyes to the depth of our sin and then open them all the more to the glory of Christ and his love for us. That your name may be honored. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In his little commentary on the book of Ephesians, Warren Wearsby opens with the story of a woman named Hetty Green. It's really a very sad story about a very poor woman. As Wearsby recounts, Hetty only ever ate cold oatmeal. That's all that she could afford, and she couldn't even afford to warm it up. In fact, it got to the point where she was so desperate that her son had to suffer a leg amputation because it took so much time for them to find a free clinic in order to treat him. His case became incurable. She simply did not have the money that she needed. Or did she? You see, the problem that Hetty Green had was not that she did not have the money. The problem was that she refused 
to spend the money. In fact, Wearsby goes on to report that when she died in 1916, Hetty Green left behind an estate valued at over $100 million. And and yet, she let her son have his leg amputated because she couldn't find a free clinic. Hetty Green had had more money than most of us will probably ever see in our lives. And yet she lived like a pauper. Warren Wearsby goes on to say, Hetty Green is an illustration of too many Christian believers today. They have limitless wealth at their disposal, and yet they too live like paupers. Brothers and sisters, as we turn our attention to this passage this morning, Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, we'll see that this is the very thing for which Paul prays this morning. That these Ephesian believers, that you and I would know the riches that we have in Christ, and that we would therefore live according to those riches that we have in Christ. Not just to know that you've been forgiven, but to live like you've been forgiven. Not just to know that you've been made new, but to live like you've been made new. Not just to know that you have a a future and a hope and a purpose in Christ, but to live like it. That's Paul's prayer this morning. So this morning as we look at at this passage, we'll see Paul's prayer, and then we'll be encouraged by Paul's confidence. And I will warn you, The first point is a lot longer than the second point. So if we get going and it's just dragging on, you check your watch and we're still on point one, the second point's going to be a lot faster. First thing we see is Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 19. Paul starts this way. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those first couple words might sound familiar to them, to, to you. This is not the first time even in this chapter that Paul has said this. In fact, if you remember a couple weeks ago, in Ephesians 3.1, Paul starts this prayer. In Ephesians 3.1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul. But then he gets distracted. And he spends the next several verses diving into his call to apostleship uh, and uh, some of these riches that are ours in Christ. But now in verse 14, he's returning to there. So so he kind of jumps right back in where he left off. For this reason. This reason goes back to everything that we've seen in Ephesians 1 and 2. This reason are all of these riches that are in Christ that Paul has touched on. What are these? Well, in Ephesians 1, it's the fact that you've been chosen in eternity past. It's the fact that you've been redeemed. It's the fact that you've been adopted. You've been given an inheritance. Ephesians 2 goes on to build on these riches, highlighting the fact that in Christ you have been brought from death to life, from far to near, from outside to inside, from hopeless to hope. 
You have been brought together in this one new man in Christ, the church, the dwelling place of God in spirit, as Ephesians 2.22 tells us. You've been given peace. So it's because of all of this, all that God has done for you in Christ, the riches that are now yours, it is for this reason. It is because all of this is true. It's because all of this is yours in Christ. That Paul bows to pray. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice first Paul's posture of prayer here. You see, Paul has the right to come boldly with confidence in Christ to the Father, just as all who are in Christ have that right. In fact, he's just told us that. In verse 12 of chapter 3, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through him in faith. We have the, the right to come before him. But boldness does not imply irreverence. Prayer is not a common thing to be treated lightly. Paul here bows his knees before the Father. It's a a posture of humility that reveals a submissive spirit and a recognition of God's greatness. It's this same submissive spirit that Jesus has in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In fact, Jesus taught the same bold yet submissive spirit in, his, in the prayer that he gives us, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer recorded for us in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 14. Do you remember how that prayer begins? Our Father. There's, there's boldness there, right? I have, a, I have a right to be here. A son can walk right into a father's office with boldness. I have a right to be there. He's my father. I have access. There's a right to approach that's implied in this relation. Our father, and yet it doesn't stop there. There's a reverence that is recognized in the fact that we are coming not just to any father, but to the Lord of heaven, our father in heaven. And what is the desire of that prayer? The desire that everything else in that prayer flows out of. Hallowed be your name. May your name be lifted high. There's a boldness there, Father. And yet there's a humility, a recognition of the one to whom I am coming in prayer. I think we so often think of boldness as speaking up or standing out, a boldness that that bursts through a door. The type of boldness that Paul has spoken of and here displays is not a demanding boldness. It's a submissive boldness. It's a boldness that speaks because it has the right to speak. I have the right to come before my Father. You see, prayer is not demanding your way. But prayer is also not begging a reluctant giver. Prayer is a confident plea. Of submission to a good and a wise God. 
Imagine how different our prayers would be if we did not take prayer lightly. But like Paul, we recognize the privilege that is ours in Christ to come before the Father. To know the gravity of a situation is to rightly approach and appreciate a situation. Know the gravity, the seriousness of prayer as you come before the Father. Know what a privilege that is, brothers and sisters. Rightly appreciate that. To bow not just your head out of tradition, but your heart out of reverence and awe to a holy God who hears you. In fact, that's the very next thing that Paul goes on to say here. I bow my knees to the Father, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Notice not just the posture of prayer here, but the person of prayer. The reverence here displayed by Paul is because of the access granted to Paul. Notice that this prayer is not addressed to Paul's friend, Kevin, down the hall. This prayer is not addressed to a priest. It's not even addressed to a human magistrate or king. This prayer is addressed to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same Father to whom Jesus prayed. It's the one who sent Jesus, the Son, to the cross. It's the one who brought him back to life in victory. Notice, too, that his authority goes beyond the influence of just this small infant church. He is the one from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Jew or Gentile, Mediterranean or European, Roman or barbarian, terrestrial or heavenly. He has authority over all of them. He is the true father. The very idea of father goes back into eternity to the relation of the Trinity. This is the one before whom Paul prays. And brothers and sisters, the amazing thing is that Paul has his ear. And not just Paul, but when you pray in Christ, you have his ear. He hears your prayer. He knows your needs. And really, that is the power of prayer. The power of Paul's prayer is not because of the beautiful words that Paul employs. It's because of the powerful one to whom Paul prays. For this reason. That's not only the reason that Paul's praying for them. That's the very reason that Paul can pray. Because of all of these riches that are ours in Christ. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul takes the time there, two verses, to lay out who it is that he's praying and the humility that he comes to prayer with. But what are the things for which Paul prays? We see that in verses 16 to 19. This is Paul's prayer, that he would grant you 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul here addresses his prayer to the Father. He bases his prayer, though, in the grace of God, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Paul is praying to the one who can answer his prayer, and he's praying to the one who loves to answer prayer. In fact, the idea here, to the one that that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, the idea here is not just that he has the ability to answer your prayer, but the fact that he has the ability to answer your prayer in abundance. The riches of his glory. It's like going to Bill Gates and asking him to help with your phone bill. That's not going to stretch him. That's not going to worry him. He has infinitely more than that. That's the idea here. It's not just his ability. It's the abundance. Paul's prayer here is really threefold. To this God, the Lord of heaven and earth, from whom all families are named, the one who may grant according to the riches of his glory. Paul's prayer is threefold. First, it's to be strengthened. And he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, brothers and sisters, we need strength. If you know your heart, you know how desperately weak you are. And the good news here is that you are not alone. God has not saved you and then moved on, abandoning you to complete in yourself what he began. No, God is at work in you. According to his great and limitless glory, he is strengthening you for what he has called you to. Notice that this strengthening comes through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. It is the very core of who you are, your hearts. God is at work in you from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, the strength to endure and to progress in sanctification is not in yourself. Paul doesn't pray, I pray that you would be strong. I pray that God, according to his great glory, that he would strengthen you. It's not a matter of gritting your teeth, of bearing with it, of manning up. It's a matter of God at work in you. It's a matter of God strengthening you. 2 Corinthians 4.16 puts it this way. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. God is at work in your very core. 
molding you into his image, strengthening you. I mean, how encouraging to know that just as I I did not, in fact, I could not save myself, neither can I endure or grow in or by myself. It is God who strengthens me through his spirit that indwells me from the riches of his glory. Paul goes on to really restate his request with a parallel request that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is not really a different request. It's just a restatement. In fact, Peter O'Brien notes that to be empowered by the Spirit in the inner person means that Christ himself dwells in your hearts. Now, there might be a question here at first, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Is is he talking here about salvation? I would submit to you this morning that Paul is not questioning the salvation of his readers. Rather, he is praying for the continual presence of Christ in them. That Christ would be more and more at home in them. See, the danger here is not that they might lose Christ. Rather, the request is that they would grow in Christ. That he would become more and more at home. In fact, O'Brien goes on to do a good job unpacking this. He says this, If Christ has taken up residence in our hearts, he is at the center of our lives and exercises his rule over all that we are and do. This indwelling is through faith. That is, as they trust him, he makes their hearts his home. The implication of the apostles' prayer, then, is that the more the Spirit empowers their lives, the greater will be their transformation into the likeness of Christ. Paul's prayer is that you would recognize that Christ, that God is at work in you, He is strengthening you. He is molding you. And as you submit to that, He is changing you into His image. And Christ is becoming more and more at home in you. And that works its way out. But notice here that this is all of God. It's not your strength along with God's strength. It is God at work in you through faith. It is His strength. But you might ask the question, this is a good theoretical idea that God is strengthening me through his spirit. He's changing me from the inside out. But what does this look like practically? Paul is is praying that God would be doing this in his people, which he is. What does that look like practically? We see here is it looks like being rooted and grounded in love. In fact, I would argue... And I'm not by myself in this. Several commentaries I checked would would argue this as well, that it is best to place the end of verse 17 being rooted and grounded in love here. Being rooted and grounded in love does not introduce Paul's second request, but it rounds out Paul's first request. The Father's work in me works its way out in love that flows from me. 
I am rooted and grounded in love. Two illustrations kind of showing the same thing. Roots that go deep, that hold me strong. A solid foundation. Love is my foundation. Everything that I do flows from love, whether it's confronting a brother or sister over their sin, providing a meal for a hurting family, praying for one another, providing for my own family, guarding the truth. Everything flows from the foundation of love, strengthened by God's work in me from the inside out. The more at home Christ is in me, the more love will truly flow from me. So that's the first prayer. First request, that you would be strengthened. God working inside you, working its way out in love. Secondly, the request is that you would have knowledge. Paul prays here that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Note here the suspenseful pause of a momentarily incomplete thought. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And and notice there's kind of a line, there's kind of a pause there, there's a break there. The the width and length and depth and and height of of what, Paul? Of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Paul prays here that by divine enabling, that his readers would understand the immense love of Christ for them. In fact, note that. Not, Paul's prayer is not, I pray that you would love Christ more. His prayer is, I want you to know Christ's love for you. The deeper you go into Christ, the more you soak in the truths of the gospel the more you will know and stand in awe of the love of Christ. Have you not found that in your own life? That the the longer that you've been saved, the deeper you grow, the more you come to see not only your sin and how desperately wicked you are, but the more you see that, the more you see how glorious is the love of Christ for me. All believers together. This is not for just a, a special class of believers. Those who've really reached that next level. Christ really loves them. But with all the saints. That you would be able to comprehend Christ's love that passes knowledge. It's kind of a paradox there, is it not? I want you to understand Christ's love for you that passes knowledge. I want you to know something you can't know. To wrap your mind around a love that you will never plumb the depths of. In fact, it is no wonder 
that we are rooted and grounded in love by the strength of God if Christ is at home in us. Who is there that that you cannot love if Christ can love you? This week as I was meditating on this passage, I was sitting on the 16th floor balcony of a hotel room in San Diego, California, looking out over the Pacific Ocean. It was beautiful. I meant to include a picture in my PowerPoint, but forgot. I have one on my phone if you want to see it. It was beautiful. If you've ever stood on the edge of the ocean, seemingly endless in all directions. In fact, I I looked it up. If you're standing flat on the ground, you can see about three miles out. But standing up on the 16th floor, we could see something like 16 to 17 miles out. Just endless in all directions. They say that over 80% of the ocean is unexplored. You see, you can go and experience the ocean. You can, you can go to the beach. You can wade out into the ocean and get a tiny taste of the power of that ocean. You can taste the salt. You can feel the coolness of the water. But you can't really grasp the depth and the vastness of that ocean. I think it's a powerful picture of the love of Christ displayed in this passage for us. And yet it is not merely strong enough of an illustration because the ocean has a shoreline as unfathomably large as it is in size. It is limited. But the love of Christ has no limit. It has no end. And yet Paul's prayer here is that by divine enabling that you would come to know what passes knowledge by the grace of God and the strength of God. Maybe you need to hear that this morning, brothers and sisters, that you are loved with an endless, unknowable love. You are loved. This love encourages the saints because it never waxes or wanes. It is constant and eternal and endless. You are never not loved. You are never loved less. When you sin, you don't have to run from God and hide in shame. You run to the one who loves you. What riches are yours in Christ? Oh, that you and I would know the love of Christ that passes knowledge to live like it is true. I want you to know that love. Finally, his third request, that you would be filled. This is really the ultimate goal that Paul here is praying toward. There's a progression here. That God would strengthen you for what he's called you to. That as you grow, you would come to know this love of Christ more and more to the end that you are filled with the fullness of God. Positionally, we are full in Christ. In fact, just like Paul in Romans 8 speaks in past tense, highlighting the already reality of glorification of what Christ, of what is ours in Christ, 
even though we do not yet experience glorification. But Paul talks about it as if it is ours. Because it is ours in Christ. So here, there's a sense in which we, we are filled with the fullness of God in Christ. And yet there's a not yet aspect to it. He's speaking of our day-to-day experience as we are strengthened through the Spirit's work in us. We grow to comprehend the love of Christ for us. We will grow more and more Christ-like, living in the reality of who we are in Christ and the riches that are ours. And Paul's ultimate desire is that God would complete his work in us. That's Paul's prayer here. All of this summed up is that God would complete in you what he has begun. Even as Paul goes on to say in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he will do this. God will complete in you what he has begun. But again, that just lends the question, how can this be? How can we who are so sinful ever hope to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? How can we ever hope to be filled with all the fullness of God? That's what we see here in Paul's confidence. Paul closes his prayer with a benediction that reminds us of the one who will do this. Do you remember that one to whom Paul is praying? The Lord, the God of the Father of all. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Who is the one who is at work in you? It is God who is at work in you. Unless you're worried that there might be some chance that that God will not complete this, brothers and sisters, remember who he is. He is the creator of the universe and the author of salvation. He formed the stars with a word and he breathed life into man. He is the one who rules over nations and parts seas. He has power over life and death. And Psalm 46.10 calls us to remember, saying, Be still and know that I am God. Is there anything impossible for our God? No. That's the obvious answer, is it not? No. There is nothing that is impossible for this God. There is no limit to his power, no cap on his mercy, no depth to his wisdom. It is endless. He is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Think about that. All that we ask or think in our wildest imagination. The craziest thing that our, the thing that we can think of, the farthest that our imagination can go. We can't even begin to scratch the surface of what he can do. Far more abundantly than all that we ask. Romans 8 tells us we don't even know what to ask for, but thank the Lord that the Spirit's in us, speaking for us. All that we abundantly than we ask or think. And here's the amazing thing about all of this. This powerful God 
He is at work in us. In us. That's the end of the verse. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that's at work in us. Paul prays a powerful prayer in confidence to a powerful God. He will finish what he has started in you. Paul can be confident not only that God will answer this prayer that is based on God's promises, but but that God is able to answer this prayer and to keep his promises. Our kids recently started using the word promise. I promise that. I promise this. So we're in the process of teaching our kids of the power of a promise. That's not a word you just throw out there. Promises are not to be taken lightly. Do not make promises that you cannot keep. That's easier said than done for us, is it not? If someone needs to move on Saturday and I make a promise, yes, I I will be there. There's things that are outside of my control. I could have a flat tire. The weather could be bad. Something could happen in my family. There's, There's things that are outside of my control that can keep me from keeping my promises. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing outside of the control of your God. Every promise he makes is a promise that he keeps. There is no threat to his word, no unforeseen circumstances at play. Our all-powerful God has an unbreakable word, and he is at work in you. So do not fret. Don't worry that you might be left undone, that you might be left lacking. Look who's at work in you. Rest in his promises. And finally, all of this, Paul's prayer, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory. See, all of this is dependent on him. So he's the one who deserves all the glory. This is God's work. It's not my work in myself. It's not me who has to mold myself into the image. God is doing that. God is at work in me. God deserves the glory. Not just in your life, but in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. For how long? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a privilege to serve this God. What hope is ours in Christ? So brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning. Paul's prayer and our prayer for one another that God would complete in us what he has begun. Know the riches that are yours in Christ and live like it because it is true. Live in accordance to the riches that are yours in Christ. Soak in the gospel. Love your Bible. And let God work in your heart and life. Let him strengthen you. Don't try to do it in your own strength, because you will fail. 